Hey everybody, this is Dave Broadback. I'm coming to you live. Well, it's live right now. It's recorded for you. But coming to you uh, from what I have often called my podcast studio, which is actually uh, my daughter's bedroom, old bedroom. Anyway, uh, the lecture you're about to hear is for Psychology 3196, Human Evolutionary Psychology. Uh, Hope you like it. So, uh, I looked up what some of these uh, chimp facial expressions mean. Right. Does it bother me? I didn't know what they meant. I do know the one about the threat, which is the, which is this. That's actually not. This is usually screaming. This is their, this is um, anger, if you want to call it that. This is usually asking for grooming from another chimp. Okay. Uh, so, that's pretty social. And the top left one here, that's when they're playing. So, that's asking another chimp, you know, let's... Let's wrestle. Or something like that. So that's, I looked it up. I had no idea. I just, I, knew, I did know the, I'm really, really, really frightened of you. One. No one has mentioned the Dirty Harry thing in any of the articles that I read between this morning and now. I read, I read just this morning. All right. So it's also, like I said, this is something, the idea of, Detecting emotion in facial expression. First of all, cultural universal. Secondly, the cool thing is that it's it shows up in our close relatives evolutionarily. Um, our emotions actually can feed off our expressions, which seems as backwards. Right? It seems that you're happy and you smile. Or if you're happy, you know, you know, you might clap your hands. Thank you. But so Great experiment by Duclat et al. 1989. They forced people to smile. And the way they forced people to smile is they put a pencil in their teeth. Hold a pencil in your teeth. How to do that for, if I'm not mistaken, it's either one minute or five minutes. I can't remember the number. So it's one of those two. Like that, that much I can tell you. And then they had, they had one group who held their and the other group who didn't, and they had them fill out a questionnaire measuring their happiness, and the, quote, smiling groups had a higher level of happiness. And there was no, like, hold this in your teeth because it emulates smiling. Like, there was nothing like that. It was just hold this in your teeth. And in fact, this is often taken advantage of by therapists, as you, you may know this, or people might tell you, just act like you're okay. I remember when I was in uh, therapy and the, the, the uh, therapist said to me, is that cat? He said, you know that emotions actually feed off facial expressions and, 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 and also off behavior. I said, and he's about to draw a picture. I said, I can pull up the PowerPoint slide if you'd like. Because I literally just thought it would be a second. So it's kind of cool, but it also makes us question... And he always looks at me and goes, I hate psychologists. Um, it makes you wonder about the notion that. I use it the function of these things. And I think it's when we have anything that's uh, of facial expressions, and I think what's going to be anything that's going to be for communication, it makes some sense that it's going to be called universal. Right? 
one wonders why the cognition can be fed from the facial expression and vice, not the other way around. I don't know the answer to that question. It's sort of a mystery to me. I could probably make up a story, but I could make up a story the other way, too. And when you can make up a story both ways, that's probably not a very good explanation. So people did feel happier. Uh, Ackman, the guy who did, you know, Paul Ackman, the guy who did that work, I, was, I showed you the, the pictures of the face. He's done a lot of work with actors and found out the fact that when actors just pretend, because that's what actors do for a living, when they're given a scene, so they don't, don't, no preparation, no like, what's my motivation? There's none of that. There's read this scene, but they know how to act, so they're professionals. They actually experience the emotions that's written in the scene. Unlike untrained people. So, uh, I'm no actor, um, but I play one on television. So, I'm not an actor, and uh, I don't know who else is an actor. Mason, you're not an actor, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, okay. So, if we were to read a scene together, and scene. Um, we wouldn't experience the emotion, but if we've got two people here who are actually actors, they experience the emotions that are on the page. So again, it's behavior driving an internal state. Which is really weird, because it's complete, it seems completely ass backwards to our personal experience, right? Smile though your heart breaks in two, right? So the experience of emotion is something that we want to think about. Emotions can be, we can classify them in certain ways. They can be pleasant versus unpleasant. That seems fair. They can be arousing versus sort of, I don't know, not arousing or making you sleepy. Anger is arousing. Uh, shame isn't. It's kind of like you want to withdraw. Like no one says, I'm so ashamed, I guess I'll go for a run. Like, yeah, right? it's like, I feel bad about things, I'm going to go high. I'm so embarrassed, I'm going to tell everyone about it. That's, that's how it works. Right? And they can be long or short-lasting. Surprise isn't long-lasting. When you get to a surprise party, and they yell surprise, the rest of the night is like, whoa! It's, it's a pretty short-lived thing. Whereas happiness or sadness can be very long-lasting. I have the ability to be angry for 45 seconds and it goes away. It usually involves swearing, hitting things, yelling, and I'm fine. No, I don't do that. I just go, you son of a bitch! All right, well, that's fine. You just gotta get it out of your system. Yeah, yeah, that, that's the way it works for me. Not everybody. So that's one way we can classify these things. Um, Izzard, I believe, I don't think this is Eddie Izzard, the comedian. Anyone? No? Uh, oh. <laughs> somebody, somebody got it? Okay, that's nice. Um, said that we have emotion. Here are the following emotions. We have ten of them. Joy, excitement, surprise, sadness, guilt, anger, disgust, contempt, fear, and shame. And then he said that all other emotions, I can't, I, the whole time I'm imagining him saying this, where he's like, I don't know. But, 
says that all other emotions are combinations of those. What do you think? What do you think of that? Like, I'm trying to think of an emotion. Can you think of an emotion that's, that should be there? That isn't? That's sort of what Arthur teaches. Oh, yeah, that's a very standard approach. Where's jealousy? Oh. I don't see jealousy. What would jealousy be a combination of? Contempt. Is that when you're disgusted in somebody? And what do we have disgust? <laughs> contempt is like anger directed at a single person, like hatred at a single person. Like I have, you know. So I don't know where that would be. Maybe it's missing one. Yeah, maybe it's missing one. Well, contempt could still, like, technically it could be if it's jealousy or envy, it could be anger directed towards yourself because you don't have that thing. Yeah, maybe. Or you're angry yeah. at that person that has that thing. Yeah, that's fair. Could be. Could be. It's so complex. Why do they need to classify them? This is a question that, well, first of all, psychologists love classifying things. You should know that by now. Um, we also love saying it's not really a dichotomy, it's a continuum. Um, it's psychology. Those are the two things psychology. It should be like on a t shirt. And correlation. Correlation is not causation, but that's more general. One, one hopes that's got out into the general populace, not just the psychologists. But psychologists love saying things aren't a. Aren't a, aren't a yeah, or, 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 you know, it's not quite that simple. Please. Uh, just thinking about, um, because I took motivation and emotion. Yeah, yeah. Semester. No, it's not. But I think they um, classified them into the basic emotions and complex emotions. Okay, and the complex ones are combinations of these yeah. things, yes? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I kind of like it, except I'm trying to find, I want to know what shame is. Not shame, sorry. I want to know where envy is. Envy falls under Okay. It's either benign or malicious, so benign can be a positive thing. Sure, of course. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you could be envious of someone and it can motivate you to do something, to work harder. I can see that. But what, what is it a combination of these things? Which ones? It's contempt and. It doesn't have to be contempt, does it? Sadness and anger. Sadness and what? Oh, sadness and anger. Sadness and anger. Okay. Could be a bit of fear, too. Maybe. Fear that, like, jealousy is fear that someone's going to take what you have, right? And envy is you want what someone else has. Yeah, that's probably a fair assessment. I think that's how they explain it all the Simpsons. Well, and that's usually, that's where I go to for <laughs> explanations of things like this. So. All right. So that's sort of basic stuff. Let's talk about fear. Now, fear is exceedingly adaptive. When people say that someone has no fear, that's actually bad. Right? Having no fear of something would be bad. There are things to be afraid of. Think back to the EEA. It makes a great deal of sense to be afraid of, I don't know, saber-toothed tigers. They're bad. They kill. They eat people for a living. And it's going to energize your behavior at the fight or flight response, right? The thing is, we can learn to fear objects and things like that, too. So we fear, like, being afraid of a whole bunch of bees is pretty sensible. Isn't it? 
like a swarm of bees. I'm not talking about a single bee. In other words, don't act like me. When a single bee comes near me, I run. And I do this. All the things they say not to do. The animal behavior expert here does all of them. Right? So, ah! so we can fear objects. We can fear situations. And we can learn those things through observations. A lot of data on this. In fact, I'm quite sure my fear of bees comes from watching my father's reaction to bees. My father had exactly the same reaction to bees. My father was afraid of very few things. Bees and moths were two of them. Why he was afraid of moths, I'll never know. My dad actually got over his fear of moths. One night... He, my, my dad discovered flooding independently of other people and just sat there and killed a bunch of moths in front of a light bulb. He had been drinking. <laughs> and then his <coughs> But we do, we do learn to fear objects. We learn to fear things. Nobody's afraid of houses, though. Oh, I'm afraid of shelter. No, no, no one's like that. You ever hear about that? Nobody's afraid of mothers. You may be afraid of your own mother. You're not really afraid of your own mother, right? It's not like when your mother walks into the room, your heart beats quickly, and you feel like running away, and your mouth gets dry, and your pupils dilate. And if that's the case, seek help. <laughs> So people will be afraid of a dog or a cat, right? A big cat. Being afraid of house cats, weird. But might be afraid of dogs. But is anybody afraid? Think about this. Is anybody afraid of things like shelter and mummies? I don't mean mummies. I mean mummies. Okay, it depends though. Like, is the mother angry? What no, I mean, walking down the street, you see a woman pushing a, 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 a stroller, and you go, oh God. No. Or pregnant women. If I see a pregnant woman, I'm running. Don't go into the elevator with her. I've seen enough 90s TV. She's giving birth in the elevator. <laughs> I like the way you base your life, your experience, your, on, on really your lack of life experience so much, but on poorly written sitcoms. When I was in the hospital, I had a pregnant nurse and I couldn't take it. I was like, Dad, get her away from me. I can't take it. You're in a, in a hospital, so you probably wouldn't have to deliver that baby. No, that's right, but because there are actual healthcare care professionals in hospitals that do that for a living. Like she could deliver it herself, she's a nurse. But like, I don't know that that's a thing people do. Instead of a mirror? Yeah. <laughs> but no, think about this. Is anybody afraid of, have you ever heard of houseophobia or yes. mommyophobia? Uh, the fear of houses is called domatophobia. Really? <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> and how common is it? Oh, exceedingly rare. Sure. Yeah. But is it the fear of I just I was curious, so I looked it up. <laughs> it's funny, people aren't afraid of airplanes, they're afraid of being in airplanes. But typically people are not afraid of airplanes or automobiles. Nobody's afraid of cars, and yes, you can probably look it up because someone has come up with a name of it because, oh, I know some guy, and I'll make up a name. So the thing is, 
first of all, we're not afraid of things that we shouldn't be afraid of evolutionarily. We're not afraid of moms. You can be afraid of your own mom. As they said, that's different. And you shouldn't be afraid of your own mom. You should love your mom. But people aren't afraid of mothers. People aren't afraid of shelter. People aren't afraid of... So that's things that we shouldn't be afraid of evolutionarily. People also aren't typically afraid of things or don't develop fears of things that didn't exist during the EA. People aren't afraid of airplanes. They're afraid of being in an airplane. That's an entirely different thing. A fear of heights, in fact, is exceedingly sensible. Being that high up in the air is weird. Right? And it's interesting when you look at people, even from refugee communities, from war torn communities, and they've dealt with air raids, they typically aren't afraid of airplanes. And airplanes typically used to mean to these people, oh, things are going to be dropped in my house that might explode. You expect everybody to be afraid of airplanes. And it's not typically the case, which is kind of fascinating. The, the key in all this probably is the amygdala, as you know, with these sort of strong emotions like fear. There's probably also genetic factors. But what are things that people are typically afraid of? People are typically afraid of things very commonly. Spiders. Snakes. And I mean afraid of enough that if there was a snake in the room, somebody in here, their heart would beat really fast, their pupils would dilate. Your, your breath would get quick, your, your mouth would get dry, and you'd want to run away. I don't mean like, yeah, not touching the snake, Dave. Right? Or a spider. I have, for example, I have a, a colleague from New Zealand who does spider research, and it's just fascinating. But I'll tell you something. Being at the conference that I go to every year, the Conference of Comparative Cognition, whenever Fiona from New Zealand gets up to give her talk, there's about 15 people of the 250 of us going, no, I can't watch a spider talk, I'm sorry. I gotta go. Because they're going to get, they're going to have the sympathetic nervous system reaction. They know it and they leave. Most of us are like, spider cognition? Cool. And other people are like, spider cognition? Cool. Don't want to see it, though. Couldn't they override it by facing it? Well, no, that's like flooding or something like that. Sure, I mean, but the thing is, is that something that would you want? I mean, is it that big a thing in your life? But are they not psychologists going to a conference? They're not clinical psychologists. I know, but a, a talk shouldn't scare them out of the room. Well, no, people realize it's, it's, they realize it's completely irrational. Yeah. Yeah. Remember, phobias are irrational fears. It's a completely rational fear is if someone's holding a gun to the chin. <laughs> you, were, you, were, you were here on Monday, you won't know what that means, but it's completely rational to be afraid if someone hold, pulls a gun on you. It's not rational if I have a pretend gun. It's irrational if there's a, a picture of a snake. Well, a student of mine uh, back in Newfoundland, Bianca, was, was deathly afraid of sharks, which again, people are afraid of sharks because sharks eat food. But Bianca was so afraid of sharks, in fact, if you said the word shark, you could literally watch the color go out of her face. Like, it was unreal. Like, she, her heart would start beating fast, the whole thing. 
So of course, she used, to, she used to work at the bar. So oftentimes we'd do things like cut the word shark out of magazines and just leave it in the bar. <laughs> this was at her boyfriend's behest. I think that's when Keo managed the bar. Newfoundland, so it's probably, let's play it on Keo. Um, the point is, we never took pictures. No one is afraid of motorcycles. No one's afraid of cars. No one's afraid of... Cody, just you have to find a cheap place to sit. Somebody's done something to the room. Oh. There are chairs, but you can move them over there. You know, do whatever you want. Don't worry about it. Oh, oh. what? Oh, please, please. Excellent. Good work, everyone. Yes. Why are people afraid of blood? Of blood. Yeah. Uh, it signifies injury. But well, sister, if we're social and stuff, shouldn't we want to help others? Well, hmm, that's a good question. But what if that signifies that their person, that person is in danger and there's danger around you? So you don't want to go yeah, there. you probably don't want it unless it's somebody's really close to right. Well, yeah, like rabbits, when you want to keep them out of your garden, you sprinkle, or your garden, you sprinkle blood meal. They smell a slaughter, and then they they're stay true. away from it. I didn't know. Yeah. No. Not a big rabbit infestation where I live. Also, also don't garden. Seems to me to be pointless. What? Where would very specific fears come from? How do you mean? Like, Give me an example. I had a teacher who had a fear of eye injuries. Wow. Yeah. That's something I've never heard of such a thing. I mean, I believe it. I just, I don't, I don't know that we can sit here and always, again, have an evolutionary angle on it, too. Where do they come from? I think oftentimes they're, they're somebody's had an experience. They've learned something. There's something, for example, maybe they had something close to their eye once they started to stare. That's the guess. I don't know the So fear's a very useful emotion as far as, you know, being adaptive, right? Anger. Anger is pretty easy to detect. It's easier to detect than happiness. When we think of happiness being the opposite of anger, anger is much easier to detect. And there's data like that. So if someone is angry at you, you may be in some danger. So it makes a lot of sense to be able to detect when someone else is angry, doesn't it? A lot of evolutionary sense. So when you're angry, your fight or flight response is going. By the way, the worst thing you can do is vent your anger, that sort of thing. All that usually tends to do is make you more angry. The best thing you do is just to calm down. So you, you know, vent through anger, you vent through exercise, things like that. Go for a run. Because you are energized, right? Um, it makes sense, though, that we can detect anger easily, especially on people's faces, because it's a threat to you. Someone being happy is not a threat to you. Someone being angry is a threat to you. 
this makes sense, again, evolutionarily, it makes great deal of sense that we can detect something like this. All right, but people say, can't we all just be happy? Well, no. It actually wouldn't be very adaptive to accept everything. Oh, just accept your lot in life. Just accept who you are and accept that everything about you sucks in your life. It's okay that the bully's taking your lunch money. Just accept it. That's not a very adaptive approach. And in fact, small things should not make us that happy. And they shouldn't make us happy forever. So some small good thing that happens to you shouldn't have a long-lasting effect. Right? So if you find a quarter, you shouldn't, the rest of the, think of it, how non-adaptive this is. Going back to the EEA, you're walking around in the savannah and you find a nut instead of a quarter. So you're going to find, because there's not a lot of quarters back 200,000 years ago except from the ancient aliens, as we know from the history Um So you find a nut. You eat the nut. For the rest of the day, you should be going, I am the most awesomely blessed human ever. I had a nut. Right? That's not a very good... That's going to actually stop you from doing important things. And you were saying so? Someone said so? Oh, yes. yeah. Sorry. So um, what about being altruistic, like doing a small gesture for someone and letting mm-hmm. that make you, like it, have it impact your emotion for the day, or at least a couple hours. I think the size of the gesture, of the gesture and the potential reciprocity is what you should be, it is in fact what we're selecting to pay attention to. So like, going back to last year, let's say there's also a study on bad emotion. Okay. Some lady bat gives another lady bat some blood because yes. she's a little hungry, starving, yes. possibly. Yes. Um, lady bat. <laughs> yeah. Well, they found that it was more common in female bats. Female, not lady. <laughs> okay, but maybe she's also really polite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really polite, crosses her legs when she sits, things like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, let's transpose that to people yeah, yeah, sure. how would that kind of gesture expect to affect the giver oh I think, I think in fact there's a whole lot of data suggesting that doing something good for someone else does make you feel good and the size of the gesture because we expect and we have been selected for over time for what's called reciprocal altruism you scratch my back I scratch yours so if I do something really good, I give a lot of money to charity, I feel much better about myself than I do if I give a smaller amount of money to charity. Right? Or if I do... Like, I felt great when we gave our last car to have that for humanity. Right? It's like, I am probably the best person in the world. I also got a $2,800 tax credit, but... I felt like I was the greatest person in the world. I was doing it selfishly. For the tax credit? For the tax credit. Of course I was doing it. 
But also I was doing it because I think have to have the humanity's very sense of charity. Now, and also because the dealer wouldn't give us enough for our user. So, you put all that together, pretty good at it. Probably made me feel way better than it does when um, I give a quarter or a, or a toonie to a veteran when I buy a pot. The gesture itself is larger. We talked the other day about how you feel you're more likely to give blood, bring it back to blood, when you are given a little sticker that says, I gave blood. You want to, and in fact, giving blood is the ultimate sort of gift to someone else because, in fact, you are giving anonymously physiological resources to someone else. Like, you, I made this blood, I'll give it to someone. What about an organ transplant? Or organ transplant is another example. I would put that on a higher. <laughs> oh sure, I mean, but but the thing is, it's hard to measure. Not a lot of people do live donor stuff. I mean, there's kidney transplants, things like that, where they give somebody a kidney. Dave, I agree with what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Completely, but sometimes doing the right thing doesn't feel good. Oh, of course not. No, so that's that's correct. Yeah. You know? So, how would that? Feel? Well, give give me an example. Like, uh, like you see, like uh, an old lady, she fell down on the street. Yes. You go and pick her up. Yes. It's inconvenient because you're going to be late for class. But yes. You go and do it anyway. Yeah, sure, of course. So it may not feel good at the time, but you realize, hey, I probably should do that. Yes. So how does that fit in into... You're more likely to do it when... The interesting thing is you're more likely to do that when there aren't people around. Right? You're more likely to be a good Samaritan when you're the only possible Samaritan. How does that work? Uh, just the future. Wouldn't it be the opposite? Wouldn't you no, you, you, you would certainly expect it would be the opposite. It just doesn't work that way. But so what you're saying is you're not doing it for attention. You're doing it because there's nobody else. There. Because there's no one else to do it. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's diffusion of responsibility. There's a lot of people around. This is the same reason, for example, when you when when if, if someone if someone in here right now collapsed, okay, had a heart attack. You don't say someone call an ambulance. You pick someone, you point at them, and say you call an ambulance. That's that's your. If, if you've ever been trained in any sort of first responder stuff, any CPR stuff, one of the first things they tell you is order people around. Because if you just yell someone call an ambulance, everybody will go. Oh, somebody will call an ambulance. I want to get a picture of this for Instagram. So, wow. yeah, world star. This is gonna go viral. Um, <laughs> But when we look at something like these sort of altruistic things, first of all, we're more likely to be altruistic to people who are more like us. So people who are in your same social group, people who are roughly the same age as you, people just basically little uh, what's the word? I guess tags might be the best way to think of it. So you can check off certain boxes and say this person is more or less like me. You don't do this. I'm not saying anybody does that. I'm sure some jerk does, but I don't say anybody does this consciously. I don't think people are sitting there going, "Well, I would lend you money, but you're from a different ethnic group than me." Are there people like that? Yeah, in America. Yeah, sure, in Canada too. But for the most part, most of us are like, "Wow, we don't think of those things," but they do affect things like giving to charity, right? to make us feel good. But small things shouldn't make you happy forever because that's actually not going to be very adaptive. Um, the most sensible emotional state, in fact, the one that's going to not distract you from being eaten or finding food, 
And remember, basically in the EEA, we are a really smart one still, a really smart ace. We have two jobs. Don't die and find food. What's not going to distract you? Just being neutral. Just being neutral. So I've talked, I was talking about cooperation. So these are sort of these social emotion things, these ideas, things that help us cooperate. So that you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. This is what's called, as I said, reciprocal altruism. We even have evolved an emotion that makes us do this. Makes us feel bad when we don't reciprocate. Right? We call it guilt. You feel guilty when you don't pay back the money you borrowed from someone. You should. Sure you should. Because that's, I mean, yeah. Morality also like you. <laughs> certainly evolved as well. And in fact, human morality, a lot of it is about how to behave to other people. Right? The thing is here, this, while it's social about do I do the right thing for another person, it is about me individually. Other people have, don't have to have seen that I didn't pay back the $5. So we seem to have evolved this emotion called guilt. But we're this incredibly social ape. There's something pretty special about us, some pretty special things about us. Now, if other people know, we even have a different emotion, right? We've labeled it differently. If other people know that we've done something that violates social norms, we have a different emotion called shame. This is also going to be adaptive in the way that it's going to keep us doing this reciprocal altruism. So, first of all, reciprocal altruism isn't altruism. Altruism is doing something and getting nothing in return. It's very hard to come up with an actual example of human altruism. We're doing something and you don't get anything out of it. Whereas reciprocal altruism is like, I do something nice for you, and in the future you do something nice for me. Or, I do something nice, and I get something from it. I like doing my job. I would not do it for free. I do it to be paid. I am then given pictures of the queen that I can exchange for goods and services. So I still get something out of it, even though it isn't necessarily from you, per se. Because I feel not. So, 
the way that reciprocal altruism can evolve is that when we have our first encounter, the first thing, I am nice to you, you are nice to me. If you are not nice to me, if you defect, it's called, I am never, ever interacting with you again. Right? You know about the prisoner's dilemma? Right? You've heard of this? And the only way, the way it works best is if you cheat, I never play with you again. It works best if we both cooperate. And the neat thing is we have these emotions that have evolved to make us do reciprocal altruism. And again, as I said, you've got to remember, reciprocal altruism isn't actually altruism. I find it very difficult to come up with an example of human altruism. It's something where I give of myself and literally get nothing back. And therefore, if I'm giving of myself, I'm losing something, and I'm not getting anything in return. So you people who, like, donate anonymously, would that be? You donate blood, you donate anonymously. You don't say... Only Andrea Collins can have my blood. That would be weird, I'm sorry. But I mean, you you, you don't do that, right? You give it, you do give it anonymously, but you are more likely to give it when you can wear a badge that says, Look at how awesome I am! I give him a secret, even though I know I never give him a badge. No, but you are getting something. You're feeling good about it. Subconsciously, you are. Because if you do give it to him, you feel bad about it, so you should give it to him. See what he's getting at? Yeah. How often do you think that happens? Yeah, I don't think it happens that often. The movies, though. Well, things happen in the movies, sure. Oh, and I mean, you are more likely to jump in front of somebody when. You will get something, first of all, when it's a relic. They will just get selection. Certainly more likely then. But you're also more likely to. One could make the argument that you would go down as a hero and your family would denounce your family. Is that kind of like martyrdom? Yeah, same way. Like, yeah. Somebody else wants to say something? Oh, like, if you get a positive emotion, like, if you feel good after doing it, that's. That is that is getting something out of right? yes, so, exactly. There's not much that you can think of that you're doing something selflessly and you're getting absolutely nothing, not even. Well, and it actually is hurting you, right? Because it, yeah. if you give of yourself and you get nothing in return, it hurts. Right. Right. It hurts like the balance of things. Um, well, like five years ago, I donated all my hair Cool. And like, I got nothing in return. I had no idea who gets it. No. But it felt good, right? Yeah, it was like, you did a good thing. Yeah, it felt good, right? Yeah. Yeah. But otherwise, you got nothing. No, but you did get a good feeling out of it. Yes. See, this is the thing. It feels good to help others. So we actually do get something out of it. That's very cool you did that. Yeah, uh, sorry. What about, like, the example that, like, um, like, he was talking about, like, when it doesn't benefit you, but you do it anyway. So, like, he mentioned, like, when you go, like, see an old lady while you yeah. Is that, like, because you're not getting anything good out of it if you're, like, missing class or, like, 
You may get a good feeling. Okay. This is the problem. Now, is the good feeling, again, we evolve that way because it makes sense for us to interact that way because it's allowed us to have, and this is going to sound like I'm talking about a group and I'm not, it's allowed us to have this society we live in. Don't think about the group, though. The society is good because I get to live in it. Evolution is selfish as hell. Right? You've got to think of it that way, too. Right? So we're essentially making the world a better place for ourselves. Oh, yes. <laughs> exactly. We're selfish, horrible beings. Joey, I think you had your hand up before. Yeah, my example is the same thing. You still get something out of it, right? This, this is the issue. I mean, it's hard to come up with something where we get nothing out of it when we do something. Like, it's even the smallest thing. Like, today I was walking... Um, Along and I saw like a some garbage on the ground and I picked it up and when I got to the bus stop I threw it in the thing. For a second you think to yourself, you know I'm a pretty special person. <laughs> no one else would have done that. I'm probably the world's greatest living humanitarian. Like for, for, for a brief moment, you think to yourself, Greenpeace has nothing on me. I'm awesome. <laughs> yeah. um, I thought I had an example I mentioned to you. What about if I continuously give somebody a cigarette that I know doesn't buy cigarettes and will never return the cigarette. And I thought it was an example, but then Theo said that I alleviate the guilt of having not given him a cigarette. So well, there's that too. See, like, it, this is the beauty of this, the ideas of guilt and shame, is that they make us, these emotions energize reciprocal altruism. And they are not things that I don't think we would say that we see guilt and shame in chips. Because if we did, they would not throw poop at each other. Um, so, there's something very special about humans. That's the thing. And it's this idea that we have these social... Not just we have social emotions, but we have social emotions that drive reciprocal altruism. These are beneficial, though, because they allow us to survive. Yeah, they, yeah they, they're, benef they're beneficial to me because they allow me to later on get something. But if you just survive and everyone else dies, don't your chance of survival decrease? Well, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, so essentially it's like a, you live by the sword, die by the sword. Well, yeah, yeah. So the idea is that if I get something, if I live in, quote, society, this allows me to get something from others, and they also get things from me. And this is why we basically shun people who don't. We think we, 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 we look down upon greedy people, typically. Right? We look down upon somebody who takes and doesn't give. We, we tend to think of that as not being good. We tend to think of that as being immoral. And in fact, I would argue that morality has evolved too, and it's evolved again to drive reciprocal altruism. Do you think this maybe progressed when we were like in tribes? A lot smaller groups. Oh, I think it's all based on that. We 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 only stopped living in groups, family groups of about sort of somewhat related family groups of about between thirty and fifty people. Um, the oldest group that stopped being hunter gatherers and started living in towns. That's in the Middle East, and that's eight thousand years ago. Is this a construct, or is this like a genetic programming? You know what I'm saying? No, I don't. I don't know what a construct is. So, like a social construct. Like oh, I see what you're saying. Help each other, or it's literally programmed. Oh, I think I think it's social, saying? but I think you can't ignore. I think that culture 
is an interaction of genes in the environment, just like every tribal, tribal culture, though, you know what I mean? Oh, sure. Okay. But I mean, and I think that and the part of the problem, of course, is that those markers that we use are used for a long time to recognize in-group versus out-group are completely unreliable, right? They, they tell us hardly anything because we're such an interbred species. They tell us very little. But we used to use those as, well, that's not from my family because uh, everybody in my family has ears shaped like this, right? There's all kinds of fascinating data on friendship, by the way. For example, that you are, your, your friend is more likely to have the same blood type of you than you would expect by chance. Now, the weird thing is, I don't know about you, but I've never actually demanded blood tests when I first meet people. Like, I remember when, <laughs> you know, when, when Paul Dupuy got hired here, and I thought, this is, I like this guy. First, I better get some blood. And determine that he's determine that he's not a changeling. Again, I've been watching a lot of people face nine. Um, I don't know. What about you? So I mean, you got like I said, I, we have these emotions that drive reciprocal altruism. Is what I'm saying. Okay. By the way, just because even if you do know these things, and exactly, you don't have to buy what I'm saying. But if you realize that. There isn't anything really that's altruism. It doesn't mean you should go, well, then screw society. I'm just going to sit there quietly like a hermit and take, take, take. Oh, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> that's, that's not what you're supposed to do. It's like you can sit there and say, oh, I see probably, talk about these sort of tags, these things that we pay attention to, the determining group and out group. Oh, that probably helps explain things like why there's racism. It doesn't then say, so therefore be racist. It's certainly not the message I'm trying to get across. And if anybody takes that as the message, they obviously either aren't paying attention or they're quite dim. Um, <laughs> no, seriously, that's not the point I'm trying to make. Did you see? Yeah. We can, yeah, dim. I like that. I think we can understand something like recognizing why we would treat people differently from ourselves made some kind of weird sense 200,000 years ago, and it probably didn't even then, but it was a way to recognize family. Dawkins, Richard Dawkins in the book The Selfish Gene says we have to we can recognize we are selfish. And then say to ourselves, I will not behave that way today. We're the only animal that can do that. Chimps can't do that. Chimps don't get up in the morning and go, I will not throw poop at other chimps today. For I am a chimp. <laughs> Alright, so we can also define homicide as violent conflict resolution. <laughs> so this is anger. This is anger writ large. This is this is the killing. Violence solves everything. Well, it, it is a solution to a problem. It is probably not the ideal one. The nice thing about homicide—that's something you never thought you'd hear said. The number of things that come out of my mouth that I hope the university president is walking by the door. The nice thing about homicide is that we have a lot of data on it. Law enforcement agencies collect data on murders. Right? That's, they do that. That's their thing that they do. Well, they do other things. Enforce the law. But they have crime data. Um, Marty Daly and Margot Wilson from McMaster University. Um, I wanted to work with them. Anyway, Daly and Wilson from, from, from um, the psych department at McMaster 
did a great deal of work on homicide. Because the data are there. Here's a surprise. Men do most of your killing. Anybody surprised? No. Okay, so men are the killers. The vast majority of, of, of homicides are committed against, by men uh, against other men. Overwhelmingly more men than women. This is not to downplay violence against women or anything like that. I'm saying that the average homicide is a man killing a man. Uh, most homicides are trivial. So most homicides aren't pre-planned. Uh, 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 you know, it puts the lotion on its skin. It's not like that. <laughs> most, most of the time, it's not crazy guy, right? Most of the time, it's something stupid that gets out of hand. And in fact, this is where it gets interesting. When you look at what's happening here, we, you can look at it through the lens of sexual selection, which is, intra, uh, in this case, intrasexual competition. Now, I don't think it would be safe to say that chicks dig murderers. But... Two men fighting about something that involves a woman is the most common reason for a homicide. In the United States, these are American Of course they <laughs> They get into an argument about something about a potential maze. Crimes of passion. Yes. Friends of passion. And again, they're usually they start up for something trivial. Two guys arguing, and of course it's the states, so they both pull their guns out. <laughs> so, and this is an interesting thing because it's not that it, and again, we can understand this, it's not that it uh, um, absolves anybody of uh, guilt or anything like that. It's not like we're saying, oh, well, it's sexual selection and natural, so let's let homicides happen as long as they're about women. No. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we can understand it that way. So then, would the largest motivator of homicide be jealousy? Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's safe to say. It's sexually jealous. Yeah. It's not the majority, by the way. It's the largest group. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's not like it's fifty-eight percent or something like that. And also, by the way, almost all homicides, the vast like majority of homicides are people who know each other. They're not stranger deaths. Yeah, it's, it's not strangers. It's not people fighting each other. It's, it's, it's not just, like I said, it's, it's, it's not Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lips. Okay. Let's wrap this stuff up a little bit. So, evolutionary explanations can help us understand evolutions and I should say motivations, not end motive.
And I think they can also help us understand why those two things are intertwined. That we don't think of emotion and motivation really as separate things. And I think fewer and fewer psychologists think of it that way too. Not even just necessarily evolutionary psychologists, psychologists in general. Right? So if you look at Indeed, we used to have a course called Motivation and a course called Emotion. And we all thought around with it. Why are we having two courses on two things that are basically the same thing except one does... Let's have a course called Motivation and Emotion. Same reason we said, why are we a course called Sensation and a course called... Yeah, let's put those together. Yeah, there's lots of learning involved here, too. So like I said... I think I learned to be afraid of bees from watching my father. So we can't ignore the learning. You never ignore environmental effects. You never ignore what's happening out in the world. You also just factor it in. It's always an interaction of the two. And finally, and I'm going to stop saying this soon because I'm going to, I'm going to assume you guys are finally are going to get this point and I don't have to say it, but you don't justify shitty behavior by saying it's natural, by saying it evolved. Oh, it's fine. It's just a homicide. Probably two guys fighting over some lady. You don't do that, okay? Oh, well, that guy's a racist. Well, probably 200,000 years ago that made a weird kind of sense. You don't say that. You don't justify shitty behavior or good behavior or neutral behavior with evolution. You help explain the behavior. That's all we're trying to do. Right? All right. Questions? Oh, um, yes, please. Question. Yeah. It's related, but it's a bit maybe off uh, That's right. the wall. What about memories? How do you mean? Like, let's say um, a thousand years ago, um, you lived somewhere where there were mountains. And you were fearful of them. Your ancestors were. Oh, I see. Do you see what I'm saying? Oh, okay. So you're, you're you're thinking of it like that kind of thing being genetically passed, passed down. Yeah. Um, we have not been isolated enough for that probably to happen. We may have been. I'm trying to think of an example. It would be an interesting question. The biggest problem we have is that the idea of different pockets of humans being that isolated, we just haven't been that isolated. So it would take thousands of years? It would, yeah, it would probably take hundreds and thousands of years or something like that. Well, the, like There are some small adaptations that have happened in human populations over short periods of time. Skin color is the one that comes to mind immediately. Um, uh, eye shape comes to mind immediately. But those are really very small, subtle changes that can happen very quickly because they can be things like single genes. Are there right? any predictors of evolution? How do you mean? Like, uh, how do we know the next? Oh, you can't. You can't know. No. So it's something that's just... No. Just it just is. Yeah, you can't predict it. Um, what you can predict is that there will be change. That's about the only thing you can predict. And the thing is, because our generation time is so slow, I mean, 20 years probably in, in, in Western industrialized society is generation time. And that's still probably a stretch. It's probably like, what, 25 years. Um, so that means... A hundred years ago is your great-great-grandparents. That's only four generations. That's not enough time for any radical change to happen. Um, the kind of change you get 
when you talk about these different populations, same like skin color differences, as, as I said, but the one thing we can see, and it's a very subtle difference, and it's a couple of genes. People have been living in certain places for a very long time already. Right? Um, that's a hair color is another one like that, and that goes with the skin color. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's hard to make those kind of predictions because it's so slow. Um, if the environment was really variable, and if the other thing, see, humans can do is we can build buildings to live in, <laughs> things like that. So we have yeah, we, 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 we not a little void is the right word, but we can we manipulate the environment way more than any other species. Yeah, and also somewhat to our detriment, what with the yeah, everything dying and everything warming up, and we're all going to be dead soon. And I fear for your children. I'll be long dead by the time the warming's really bad, so I don't care. But your children are screwed. Just saying. On that happy note, you have a test coming up on Monday. Remember, four definitions of ten, and a twenty, and then a, 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 a sort of short essay question. Usual. Yeah, pretty standard. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.
on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for Dr. Dave Brodbeck's Psychology Lectures at Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a uh, uh, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want, but if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something but if you didn't i unless you're one of my students i really don't care um the music by the way for each uh song for each uh uh episode <laughs> lecture uh is uh available they're all podcast uh, like pod safe music so if you want to uh, find out about the bands there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback uh if those links don't work just contact me and i'll find uh i'll find out um Often I put links, uh, actually, in the uh, what I call them show notes or blog posts. So, uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're, they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.